Well, good morning, everybody, again. Happy uh, Spring Forward Day. Looks like you figured it out. We didn't have any slip-ups, so that was pretty awesome. My name is Derek. I'm a pastor here at Encounter Church. And, uh, and today, we're finishing this series called Above the Noise. It's a series, remember, about, about turning off the noise, the mental static, the voices in our head, to tune in to the one voice that actually truly does matter, the voice of God. Earlier, we heard uh, in the first installment of this series about all the lies that we're told about who we are and about how God overcomes those and covers our shame with his sacrifice once and for all. And then we heard last week about the truth that we are children of God and he loves us to the point of death and back. Today we pick it up with the journey from here. Kind of a like, well, what now? And specifically, more than that, I want to I wanna head us into this direction of looking at the weeks ahead, or maybe for most of you, the, the years ahead, and to, and to take a look at some of those and, and talk about some of the storms that we face and some of the valleys that we're inevitably headed into. Because what I don't want to do is to say, hey, guess what? You know, culture has lied to you, and God speaks the truth to you, and so now you're good. The problem with that is because in believing and now that you're good, when you hit the storms of life and when things go and turn kind of sideways or bad or when you head into those valleys, there's a temptation there to think, I thought it was supposed to be easier than this. I thought I was a child of God. I thought, I thought that he loves me to the point of death and back again. So, so then it, it should be easier. And if it's not, well, I guess all of that wasn't the truth is so you just end up jettisoning faith. So kind of the question for this morning, is like, is why is it that sometimes our faith fails us? Because there is a journey ahead. And when the journey gets the hardest, the voices, the noise gets the loudest and our faith fails us. I think most of all, I think most of all, because we're told and we pick it up along the way that, that being close to God through prayer, through devotions, through community, through uh, Bible reading, through all of these things, being close to God is the safest place you could possibly be. And in a sense, like spiritually, that's absolutely true. That is the case. But physically, physically, we're going to read a story this morning about how Jesus intentionally sends his disciples into harm's way. Not because he doesn't love them to the point of death and back. Not because it's not safe. Spiritually, following Jesus is the safest thing he can, if they can do. But physically, he sends them into harm's way because he has something he wants to show them or he does, wants to do something uh, with them to accomplish something. We're going we're gonna to pick up that story now. It's in Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to see why it is that faith fails us when the journey gets the hardest and the noise gets the loudest. Matthew chapter 14, there's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, the words are also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, by the way, as always, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or if you like ours better, just go ahead and take it. We love that. We give them away all the time, and, uh, and that's awesome. So Matthew chapter 14, um, we're going to pick it up where it says uh, in verse 22, the story begins, and it says, immediately. It's a word that we're going to come out with three times here. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Couple things going on about what we just read there. The first thing is that immediately seems to suggest that something had just happened that it was of the utmost importance, or there's something that, 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 that connects into this passage right here. Matthew, the author here, wants to tell us something just happened, which is why this story is, that we're reading this morning is going to be so, so important. In that case, the story was Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you, if you hadn't heard the story before, he takes a kind of kid's lunch bag. He's got a few small loaves of bread and some fish. And Jesus miraculously, and I do not use that word lightly, 
ridiculously multiplies and multiplies and multiplies that lunch until it, it has enough to feed like this massive crowd that had gathered around Jesus. And the most amazing part of the story for me in my book is, is by the end of the story, Jesus sends out his disciples to pick up kind of the crumbs and the scraps and the edges and the crust that were left over. And they put it all into a basket, into baskets. And he said that, that when they tallied it up, they had 12 baskets left over, which is this incredible story about some Somehow with God, there is more left over after everybody is fed than when they started to begin with. And that is just incredible. And then immediately this happens. You see, what is so significant about that is that, is that the miracle of Jesus had such a profound impact on the people. The story is told through the eyes of Mark and John as well, so we know this. this that, that feeding uh, the miracle had such a remarkable impact on the crowds that were gathered around Jesus that they had started talking about him as if he was the king, as if he was, as if he was the Messiah. And for them, king, and for them, Messiah, had all of these like political and military uh, elements to it. And, and so they started talking about Jesus as if, as if he's the one that's going to defeat this Roman occupation that they were under, and he's going to make all of their dreams come true, and he was going to raise up an army, and that he was going to fight these wars. And there, was, and there was this movement in this massive crowd of 5,000 people, there's this, or more, there was this movement amidst it that, that they were going to nominate elect and install Jesus, king, Jesus as king of the Jewish people once and for all, like that afternoon. And Jesus, seeing this happen, and knowing that this isn't his way, and knowing that he didn't come as this like top-down military political thing, but this grassroots bottom-up movement, knowing that he would lead a rebellion against sin and destruction and death. He would lead a movement, but it would be a movement led by the misfits and outcasts, not the social elite. Jesus, seeing all this take place, he didn't want his disciples to get, um, to get sucked into it, to get tempted by it. He didn't want his, his disciples to become tainted in some way and, and tricked and led into believing that, that, that they were going to have all of their wildest dreams come true and they were going to have it all. Jesus, Jesus wanted them, wanted to prepare them for the storms ahead and so he sent them into one. He dismissed them, sent Guys, get on the boat, head towards across the lake. I know it's windy. I know there's a storm coming. Let me take care of the crowd. He stays behind, dismisses the crowd. And then as we're going to see, he goes up onto a mountaintop and starts praying. Almost as if like he is completely okay with his followers, with his disciples being out on the open water by themselves when a storm is coming. Next line in verse 23 says, after Jesus had dismissed them, he went up on a mountaintop by himself to pray. Now, later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, probably a couple miles, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. We have to get something. In order to like get everything out of the passage, we have to understand that, that 2,000 years ago, lakes and seas and storms weren't just lakes and seas and storms. 2,000 years ago, the people of Israel, the uh, disciples here, when they were out on the open water and a storm came, it had this, this maybe superstitious, you could call it that, but, but certainly it had this like spiritual uh, element for them. That, that they believed 
that, that oversees in open water, that, that when you pass over those things, you are, you are passing through this, this like ultra-concentrated sense of, of evil or, or, or chaos or destruction. I don't know exactly where they would get that from, but my hunch is that occasionally these massive animals would wash up onto shore and they would say, what is lurking just beneath the surface? These monsters, right, are washing up onto shore. And so they, they look at water, they look at seas, and not knowing totally how things work underneath it and making up the stories all around that, they just had it in their minds that this was like this concentrated sense of evil or destruction, now, we also see that come through in a few different other places in the Bible. The Apostle John, when he's writing in the book of Revelation, the very, very last book of the Bible, he's standing in heaven, he's looking over at the throne, and he's, he's trying his best to write down this, what you just see as this majestic scene in heaven where God is dwelling. And he's, and he's writing down everything that he sees, and not all of it makes sense to us all the time, kind of got to get that. But, but one of the things that he writes down is that, is that the, in the sea was no more. And what he meant by that had nothing to do, and it had nothing against water sports. He, he, I get that question. I'm like, I see in Revelation, is there not going to be wakeboarding in heaven? Because then it's not heaven for me. And that's like a whole other deal. But when he's writing that, he is writing about that the sea is no more as a euphemism or, or as a metaphor to describe how evil and chaos, how suffering and pain and loss and death are, are just are going to be wiped away. That they are a memory. That that, that that old order, he says, is passed away and is no more. But right now the disciples are on the open water. And they don't just believe that they are in a concentrated place of, of evil or destruction or chaos. They, they also believe because the storm has come upon them that their God is now some, for some reason angry at them. And the wind and the waves are beating against the ship and they're straining their muscles, oaring against it. And they're just, we're going to see they paddle, they row all night and they just don't make any headway into the waves, into the, into the wind. And at this point, I, wanna, I want us, and I hope we all can identify as the disciples in that boat. Because this is the place where we read ourselves into the story. When we can see ourselves in the boat, and the wind and the waves of evil and chaos and destruction and suffering and pain and loss are beating against the hulls of our lives. And it's happening Again and again. I don't know what your storm is. I don't know what the wind against you might be. But, but it happens when we go into those valleys called yeah, underemployment or, or when the job that you love is just like hollowed out and it's just not as fulfilling as it was. And now it's a punch that you're, a clock that you're punching to get paid every week or two. Or the marriage that you're in has just kind of like lost the romance and the passion behind it and you're wondering what's next. Or the kid that you used, to, you used to love being around who would come home from school and give you a giant hug around your neck, or if you're out in public, would grab onto your leg because that, for him or for her, was the safest place in the entire universe, is now a reclusive teenager who doesn't want anything to do with you. There's a storm raging, and if it isn't happening today, 
I hope you can at least identify that this week or this year that this storm will hit. And there's a decision to be made because at that point, your faith journey might be at the hardest that it will ever be. And the noise and the static and the the voices in your head that are driving a wedge between you and the one voice that actually matters, the voice of God, is going to set in and that noise is going to be turned up to the loudest. And at that point, you will want to jettison faith and to say, maybe it should be easier than this. Maybe I've missed something along the way. And I hope when that moment comes, you'll come back to this passage as we keep reading that shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now remember, they did not have positive associations with water. They see a shadowy figure coming towards them. They don't think that it's their rabbi coming to comfort them on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a reasonable emotional reaction. And it's it's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. We don't blame them for that reaction. Again, This is all of us. They cry it out in fear, verse 27. But Jesus, but Jesus said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We we hit that last time, right? Jeremiah, God calls Jeremiah and said, you're going to have a terrible job. You're going to be a prophet to a a nation in spiritual decline. And you're going to be the last one to close out the light to close the doors and turn off the lights. Don't be afraid. We heard last time that he said that to to Abraham. He said it to Moses. He said it to Jeremiah. He said it to Jesus' mother, Mary. He said it to the apostle Paul. Don't be afraid. In fact, this is an awesome point, I think, that I came across earlier this week. Did you know the phrase, don't be afraid, or some variant of that, fear not, or you know, something like that, is used almost 400 times in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Now, the reason why I think that's important, and just stick with me here, is, is that maybe you've been sold a bill of goods on the faith that says that Jesus is the answer, and he's going to fix everything. And that's kind of what we're talking about, because at some point, the journey gets hard, and the noise gets turned up, and we lose our faith. We say, like, why thought this was supposed to be easy? I thought Jesus was supposed to fix everything. And we'll come back to some of that. But just to talk about this idea that everything is supposed to be easy, we, we were sold this bill of goods at some point that says that, that like, life with Jesus is going to be this, this country club comfortable, cozy kind of life, right? Where everything just kind of works out and perfect for you, right? Like we've, we've turned Romans 8, 28. It's cool if you don't know it. Right? There's Bibles though. Take one home. Check that out. It says that all things work for the good of those who love him. Now we've kind of translated that and, and sort of like interpreted that into our lives. It's like everything, everything works out. Everything just works out for those who love him. When that's not actually what that's about. That's about like everything works and conspires in our lives for, to produce this salvation, and that's maybe good or bad. It's formative either way, but it drives us closer and deeper into the love of God. That's how it works for those who are in Christ Jesus. We think that our Jesus is calling us to this safe, comfortable, cozy, country club kind of life when actually it's possible Jesus might be sending you into a storm. 
When actually it's possible that God might be asking you and stirring in something in your heart that says, I don't want you in a safe, comfortable kind of life. I want you on an outpost on the edge of hell where you will run into the flames and save as many as you possibly can. And it will hurt at times. However, everything will work for the good. Ultimately, of those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It may not be easy. The journey may get hard. The marriage may not go like you thought that it would. The job might not happen like you thought that it would. The doubts and skepticism might not stay away like you thought they would when you accepted him. It may get extraordinarily difficult Because maybe it's possible that Jesus doesn't want to call you away from the storms of this world, but he wants his followers, his disciples, to run toward the storms of this world. But he he sends you out with that message, and he knows how many times he knows how many times you need to hear it. So over almost 400 times, he says, Do not be afraid, fear not again and again, because I think he knows just exactly what he's calling you to. And as he comes, and as he comes out, he comes to the people and they cry out from the boat in verse 28. He said, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Don't, I don't know why it is that Peter like, chooses to get out of the boat. And, and we looked into this and read, like, what would compel him? Some people said that he got out of the boat because Jesus had just done this incredible miracle, feeding the 5,000, and he was kind of a part of it because he got to pick up the crumbs in the basket. And now he, he saw this miracle happen, and so he wanted to be a part of this one too. Some people say that's the thing. Other people said, you know what? Uh, he was probably like 17 years old when this happened, and he just saw this dude walking on water and thought, I'm in too. Like, just this impulsive teenager, he jumped... He jumps out. What I, what I want us to see, and this just spoke to me so much this week, um, what I want us to see is how Peter, Peter is at the very same time, like the pinnacle of what it means to be faithful, while at the same time being the absolute paradigm of unfaithfulness, of doubt, and unbelief. And somehow he like holds these things in tension. That, that it's not just like some of you some of you are faithful and others of you are not. It's not that at all. It's that at different seasons in life, maybe in just different moments of life, as we're going to see, you are both faithful and unfaithful. Belief and unbelief, they just reside and coexist together at different times. And that's also what it means to follow Christ and to wrestle with him and to struggle with him all the way through it. Keep in mind, Peter, keep in mind, Peter is the guy Peter is the guy that Jesus looks at and says, you, Peter, on you, I will build my church. Peter is the, Peter is the guy who stands up after Pentecost. At Pentecost, and he stands up and he preaches a sermon that thousands of people come to the saving belief in Jesus Christ. Of. Peter is the guy who will give his life as a martyr for the cause of Christ. That's Peter. 
But Peter is also the guy who who so badly misinterprets the message of Jesus that Jesus has has to tell him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter is also the guy that at Jesus' arrest, a little girl confronts him and says, hey, aren't you one of them? And he says, I don't know this man you're talking about. Not once or twice, but three times to this little girl. Peter is also the guy who's going to take his eyes off Jesus and start sinking in the storm in the waves. Peter is the paradigm of belief and unbelief all wrapped into one. And friends, we are all Peter. At some points, we are focused so intently on Jesus. And at other points, we take our eyes off. And we start to believe the noise and the static and the voices in our head that drive a wedge between us and God. And we, we can't quite hear the voice of our Lord Jesus saying, come on, come, walk on water, walk against the storm. It's okay. We read in the Next line, the reason why I think it is of why we give up on faith, why our faith at times fails us. In verse 30, it says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. You know, you know there's nothing in here that would suggest that the wind ever stopped, that, that the waves were, were calm even for a moment. In fact, the implication throughout this story is that it does the waves keep crashing, the storm keeps on raging, and, he, and this all happens amidst that background. But it isn't like the storm stopped and it started again, or it isn't that like all of a sudden what came from a storm got really stormy, or the wind got really bigger. It's just when he saw the wind, when he saw the waves... You know, like, like the idea is as long as he is, is a square focused on his Lord, nothing else seems to matter. But it's when, it's, when he, he pays, it's when he pays more attention to what's happening around him than on his Lord in front of him that he starts to fall and that he starts to doubt. That, that line, when he saw the wind and waves, I think that there's something in there that's indicative to say, you know what? Storms are going to be all around you. There's going to be noise all around you, mental static all around you, and voices telling you who you are and whose you are all around you that's trying to drive a wedge between you and God. But none of that makes a hill of beans of a difference until you pay more attention to what's happening around you than on your Lord in front of you. And we know that too because of Jesus' response in the next line. When Peter is afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached his hand. Immediately Jesus reached his hand and caught him. You little faith, he said. Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Now, the word doubt is used only one other time. This word, doubt, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And the word doubt specifically means to have a divided or split mind. Why did you divide your attention, Peter? Like the error wasn't just 
The air wasn't giving up on Jesus. The air was, was taking his eyes off Jesus, even just for a moment. The failure was a failure of concentration. That's what, when we talk about the noise and the static in the voices, that's what we're talking to. Paying more attention to what's happening around you than in your Lord in front of you. And you know what I think the reason to that question, the answer to that question is why at times when the journey gets the hardest, the noise becomes the loudest, and why at times does my faith fail me? I think it's because for so long, and maybe you're in a season of things going well, when when things are going well, you hang your faith on the hook of circumstances. And just so long as everything is good and peaceful and the job is good and the marriage is good and life is falling into place, the grades are good, as long as everything is falling into place and the circumstances are there, then I'm faithful. But as soon as that turns, it's like the bottom drops out beneath us and we start to sink and Peter starts to sink. So I want to suggest today I want to suggest today that you hang your faith on something more than the circumstances around you. I want to suggest to you today that you hang your faith not on the circumstances around you, that your faith is determined not on the circumstances around you, but on what Christ has done for you. To fix your eyes on that without a divided mind and to say everything lives and dies and lives again, not on what's going on around me, but on what Christ has done for me. When they climbed in the, sorry. I want to make another point on that. Um, because you need something else. We, I need something else to get me through the week. The year. Because I think at times, maybe you do too, it'll get easier, right? Like Jesus might not be calling me to a country club, cozy, comfortable life. He might be calling me to the edges, to a post on the edges of hell to run into the flames and save as many as I can. But eventually it'll get easier, right? Like eventually I will grow out of this. As I grow closer to God, I grow out of the noise and the static and the voices in my head. It will get, please tell me it needs to get easier, right? Um, I, uh, I heard a story earlier this week that was just, it fit just perfectly, but it has everything to do with video games. And so if that's not your thing, hang with me anyway. We're going to come back around to Jesus and land this thing. Um, <laughs> Not video games like the new, with all the buttons that you need like professional level hand-eye coordination to operate. I'm talking about back when they used to make games for kids, right? Like Nintendo, regular. Not the buttons on the top, just control pad A and B and select star. Um, little, anyway, Zelda, you know what I'm talking about? Like classic, couple fans? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> The game of Zelda, you start off the game, and really every game is just kind of a reiteration of that one. But anyway, bias. You start off the game, and you're this little guy, um, not Zelda, by the way, Link, and you have a little itty-bitty shield and no sword. And it's tough to like, win a game that way, so the first thing that happens is you get this little bitty sword, or you know, wooden sword. And as you go through the game, you get new things. You, like, you like, level up. Your guy gets more hearts, and you get a bigger shield and a better sword. And then as you kind of play some of these bosses, you get like a bow and arrow, and you get like a magic bracelet. And now I just sound like a nerd, but <clears throat> you get... 
And every time, like this is how games hook me, or you, for, for instance. Every time, <laughs> every time you play this game, and, and as you get into it, and every time you get something, you get a new little trinket or artifact to help you on your journey, then, <clears throat> then you, you think that this is going to make the game easier for me to win. Like, like, this tool is going to help me. And, and like, eventually, like, whatever comes next is going to be easier now that I have this. And so the way that it, like, hooks you in is to say, you know, by the time I've collected everything, you know, I have all the hearts maxed out, I have the biggest shield and the best sword, and I have everything in the game working for me, all the tools at my disposal, like, by the end, I will have everything that it takes, and this thing is just going to be, like, smooth sailing. Like, every time that I get something and level up, it gets easier. And some of you have also devoted your childhoods to this, and you realize that even though you have everything, at the last boss of the game isn't any easier than the first boss of the game. That no matter how many times you level up or grow, it never quite gets easier. And that is the point that I'd like to make about the storms in life this week or this year. That as you grow closer to God, through prayer, through scripture reading, through community, through worship. Every time you get closer to God, you think it's going to get easier now, right? It's going to get easier. And when the noise continues, the, the noise starts in a new kind of meta noise that says there shouldn't be noise right now. You must be doing it wrong. God must have forsaken you along the way. You must not actually believe. Otherwise, it would have quieted down for now. You could hear the good voice of God speaking, speaking clearly amidst it all. But I want to I wanna come back to a story of somebody, probably a Christian, who has maybe leveled up more than any other, <laughs> pretty close to it, of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, you know, is the classic, like, she was amazing, superhuman, Jesus follower kind of person. She's born in Albania. She devotes her life. She takes an oath of poverty, and she decides she's called to serve the, the world's poorest of the poor. Not only does she serve the world's poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India, but she also says, no, no, even that is too good because I, because I need to serve the, those who are dying among the poorest of the poor. And even that isn't quite as good. So, so I want to I wanna serve the poorest of the poor who are dying of, of some of the most um, misunderstood and stereotyped diseases, like those dying of HIV, AIDS-related illnesses, tuberculosis, and yes, leprosy in the mid-20th century. That's who Mother Teresa felt called for, called, felt called to serve. And as, she, and as she pursued this ministry, and as she poured in, to these people, and in guiding them along and easing that transition that they had through their diseases and on into death and giving them some hope along the way, you would think she would have this entire thing figured out. No problem. I got it. I've leveled up all the way. She can, if anybody can hear the voice of God speaking clearly above the noise, it's her. But she publishes her personal memoir late in life. And this is what she said. She said that I feel just that pain, that terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. And then she says, Jesus, please forgive my blasphemies. I have been told to, to write everything. 
That darkness surrounds me on all sides. I can't lift my shoulders to God. No light or inspiration enters my soul. I speak of love for souls or tender love for God. Words pass through my lips and I long with a deep longing to believe them. Words pass through my lips and I long with deep longing to believe them. This, by the way, isn't the only entry in her memoirs into her journal expressing these emotions, these thoughts. That she, precisely like Peter, and I'm sure exactly like most of us in the room, sort of, sort of bounce back and forth between belief and unbelief, between faith and doubt. That no matter how spiritually she grew and how close to God, she couldn't ever quite escape the noise. And friends, I gotta say, if Mother Teresa couldn't quite rise above the noise once and for all, what chance do I have? What chance do I have? What chance do I have except reach out and accept the hand of Jesus that it said it's extended to me sinking in the waters? Because you know what? There's another lie that we've been told, that I've been told. I came into this story, and before digging into it and, and hearing God speak through it earlier this week, I came into this story thinking it was about Peter. I thought this is a story about how Peter takes his eyes off from Jesus and starts to doubt. It isn't. This isn't about a story about Peter taking his eyes off and starting to doubt. This isn't a story about Peter. This is a story about Jesus reaching his hand out and saving Peter once and again and again, and again. This is a story about each one of us moving into those Mother Teresa moments of doubt, no matter how spiritually mature you are, failing to rise above the noise, and, and succumbing to the voices and the mental static in our heads. And this is a story about even though we're sinking in the storms that you will face this week, storms called debt, storms called divorce, storms called loneliness, storms called spiritual emptiness and a barren wasteland. And this is a story about Jesus reaching his hand out and picking us up again and again and again, saving us each time. It's not a story about Peter. It's a story about Jesus and just how good he is to each of us. Finish out the passage. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, and they said, truly you are the Son of God. You know, it's interesting to me that they never asked Jesus to calm the storm down for him, for them. The implication of the, of the passage is that though the storms are raging and the wind is beating against the side of your life, when Jesus comes into it, suddenly the storm isn't the most important thing going on right now. It's the fact that Jesus is in the boat. God, the same God that when Moses stepped in front of, threatened just to be in the same room as that holiness threatened death on him, that same God through the Holy Spirit has filled your heart and has filled your life. When Jesus comes into your boat, suddenly whatever storm is raging right now doesn't seem like the most important thing going on anymore because God is here. 
and God is inside of you. And God is reaching out his hand time and time again to save you and to save me. It seems to me that the only appropriate response to a story like that about Jesus is to simply accept his invitation. Just reach out a hand back and just say, Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. Pick me up in my doubt and in my faith and in my doubt again. Accept the invitation. If right now, this morning, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a while, you're, you're at the point where Jesus is in your life, in your boat, and you're going, truly, you are the Son of God. We want to hear about it. There's connection cards on the seat backs in front of you. We want to hear about it. If you need prayer for a storm that's raging in your life, beating against you right now, and you don't know who to believe or where to turn or where to go, we want to pray with you. Write that story down and just simply ask for prayers. There's buckets in the back. Uh, go ahead and drop them off between the doors and the slots over there. We want to pray. We want to celebrate with you. But most importantly, I want you to accept the invitation of Jesus. I invite you to stand up right now. Let's pray. It's like the only appropriate response. As we pray, it's, it would be a neat thing to just imagine yourself walking into the throne room that John described in Revelation and just stand before the almighty and holy God who chooses to reside with us for I have no idea what reason. <laughs> Let's pray. Great God, uh, Lord, we've accepted your invitation to be here this morning. We've accepted your invitation to worship together at some level to, to, to declare, however we are capable, that truly you are the Son of God. So God, I ask, Lord, for everybody who's in a season of storm right now and the wind and the waves are beating against their lives, I ask, God, that you make your hand and you make your help abundantly clear to them that there are uh, people here around who care and who want to pray with them and who want to see them through. God, I pray for everybody in the, in the room, everybody around, Lord, who's, who's not in a storm where things are going just abundantly well. And, and Lord, I, I pray for those because, because it's so easy in those moments to hang our faith on what's happening around us instead of what you have done for us. God, may... This week, may our faith be determined not by happening what is happening around us, but by what you, Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Son of God, have done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.